Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Prince Charles Arthur George is now, by the death of our late sovereign, Charles III, by the grace of God, the United Kingdom, Canada, and its other realms and territories, King, Head of the Commonwealth, Defender of the Faith, to whom we acknowledge faith and allegiance. So today, King Charles proclaimed to be the official head of state, the official monarch of Canada. That voice was the chief herald of Canada, Dr. Sami Khalid, reading the official proclamation. Hello, Canada. Rob Breckenridge in for Roy Green this weekend. For all intents and purposes, the moment Queen Elizabeth II died this week, Charles as king was a legal reality. But why? And how do we know that? What changes now occur automatically? What changes still need to be made? Why does all of this matter? What is it that the crown represents? It is at the core of Canada as a country. Of course, the monarch is our head of state and embodies so much more that runs throughout uh, our, our system of government. So joining us to talk about all of this, uh, right out of the gate here today, very pleased to welcome to the program one of Canada's preeminent scholars uh, on these matters. Uh, Philip Lagasse is Martin Chair, Associate Professor of International Affairs of the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. Professor Lagasse, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Uh, so first of all, that question about the legal reality of uh, Charles as our monarch, these uh, ceremonies happening today and the official coronation that will still happen. Are, are these largely ceremonial then? Uh, they are largely ceremonial, but they, they carry quite a bit of weight, as you might imagine, given that this is a, a very ceremonial institution. What we're seeing here is uh, a tradition that really dates back to the Anglo-Saxon time when there there was uh, the election uh, of a monarch under the Wiccan. But that uh, that tradition was held in place when, during the medieval era, as you mentioned in the introduction, um, we put in place the idea that the crown automatically transferred to the next in line. So we're really seeing the the interaction between two very different uh, traditions in terms of how you select a monarch, but both very deeply steeped in our history. If we have those odd circumstances where, you know, the last minute Charles decides maybe he's, he's got cold feet, maybe he doesn't want to be the king, maybe he'd rather pass it on to his son or some unusual circumstances, uh, how would that change things? Because otherwise, I, I think as you've laid out then, it, it was pretty automatic. The moment the queen passed away, Charles became the king. That's right. So if he suddenly decided that he had to abdicate, uh, he does have the option of doing a personal abdication. Uh, and then that effectively what that does is uh, it triggers a demise of the crown, which is the official name for when a monarch passes. So when the queen passed, um, in terms of the crown, it was a demise of the crown. So when a monarch abdicates, either through a uh, government order in council, as happened with Edward VIII, or if it were a personal abdication on the part of uh, Charles, that would trigger the same legal concept. So there would be a demise of the crown, and automatically his son would then become king. Of course, that, that didn't happen. Charles uh, is indeed uh, the King of Canada. But there's also that question of whether Canada follows the same rules of succession as Britain. The King of Canada is the King of, the, of, of England, obviously. But th there was some uncertainty in recent years about those rules of succession. Would it automatically follow uh, that we would have the same rules of succession as Britain? So how, how did that all get sorted out? 
So in 2011, the uh, the United Kingdom decided that they wanted to modernize their laws of royal succession. They wanted to end male preference primogeniture, which is mean primogeniture is firstborn. So they wanted to make it such that it was either male or female. Uh, so they wanted to liberalize the succession laws, and they also wanted to uh, loosen some of the rules around who can marry Catholics and so forth. So there was a meeting in 2011, and Canada was a bit reticent because there was some concern, right, in terms of our constitutional amending formula. What the, what would that mean? Uh, ultimately, uh, Australia passed its own law. New Zealand passed its own law. But Canada, uh, out of, uh, I would argue, a desire to avoid the constitutional amending formula, put forward a different position such that we automatically take uh, the monarch of the United Kingdom as our own monarch. Um, and that was ultimately upheld in the courts, even though, as a number of us have pointed out, it's actually inconsistent with what Canada did in 1936 during the abdication of Edward VIII. Right. So and that, that, that essentially cleared the air. There would never be, at least under these circumstances, a situation where Canada sees succession differently than, than Britain does. Right. It, it, but it does open a bit of an odd question, namely, if we argue that we simply take the British monarch as our own, what happens if there's no British monarch? Uh, so there is right. a bit of a, we're taking a bit of a gamble here, I would argue, in terms of uh, assuming that our head of state is always going to be clearly defined. But, you know, things could happen in the United Kingdom, and that puts us in a bit of an awkward spot uh, in the unlikely event that they become a republic. Okay, so King Charles III is Canada's head of state. As monarch, the person Charles embodies the powers that exist in the crown. So the crown itself as as an entity is is where this power rests, that power, I guess, manifests through this individual. What What is it that the crown represents? So we use the crown as our concept of the state, right? So in uh, civil law jurisdictions, you actually have something called the state. Uh, but we do not have that in Canada. We have the crown and other common law jurisdictions that have the crown as the realm, uh, or who are realms of the crown. They are uh, they use the crown as the state. So what that means is the authority of our state resides in, in this idea of the crown, and it does it ex- exercises that power in different capacities. So the crown and its council uh, exercises executive power. The crown and parliament exercises uh, legislative power, and the crown and courts uh, is the judicial power. And what is that crown? That crown, strangely enough, is a corporation, uh, which means that it's an office. Uh, So it's an office made up of uh, a legal personality and uh, an office holder with a natural capacity. So what we mean by that, as you pointed out, Charles, as a natural person, is occupying the office of the crown and exercises the powers and functions of that legal personality. So our state, odd as it may seem, is a corporation. And that really permeates through our our entire system, doesn't it? It does. So, for instance, when you go to sign a contract with the federal government or even provincial government, and you'll notice, well, that's odd. I'm signing with Her Majesty and Right of Canada. And who are you signing with? You're signing with this legal personality. Uh, Similarly, when we say, you know, the Crown and Right of Canada owns land, well, whose land is, is that? That's the legal personality's land. So you can understand why it kind of stayed in place, because it's a very convenient way of kind of organizing things. It's a a fake person who never dies, (laughs) who is able to own property, employ people, and do all sorts of things, Uh, but it's perpetual. So it solves a lot of these uh, problems that existed in the past when uh, a monarch died. 
So we have all of these laws that reference the queen, all of these contracts and, and agreements with her majesty. Does that then entail us having to go and, and rewrite all of that? Or is does essentially then our, our system recognize the crown as the entity and, and whether it's Queen Elizabeth or, or King Charles, is that, is that essentially a moot point? It is a moot point. And that's exactly why uh, over time we created the idea of a crown as a corporation sole. So a corporation consisting of one person. The the idea here was exactly for that, that there would be no doubt that the contracts that were signed, the property that was owned, was with the same legal person. So as you'll notice, for instance, when uh, there are articles being published these days about who owns what with respect to the crown. There are certain things that belong to the crown in its official legal capacity, such as Buckingham Palace, the crown estate, and other things like that. And then other things that uh, Charles inherited from his mother, such as Balmoral, Vanderham, and these other things. So even there, we see a distinction between the things that belong to the crown in an official legal capacity and the things that uh, Charles inherits from his mother in a natural capacity. Now, there are some changes that, that are being made and I guess do need to deliberately be made. And in, in some provinces, for example, Court of Queen's Bench becomes Court of King's Bench. Uh, for lawyers, Queen's Council will, I guess, become King's Council. Even in politics, we'll have to get used to saying His Majesty's loyal opposition. So, so there are those sorts of, of changes that do need to be made. Right. So we're, what we're doing is updating uh the, the, the names and titles of, of institutions to reflect the fact that there's a new natural person. But legally speaking, it's still the same. So the fact that we're making those changes and the fact that those changes are so seamless and easy to make is a reflection of the fact that at common law, the person we're referring to is still ultimately that legal fake office. Well, fake, I should say fictional is the better word. Right. <laughs> right. It, it, it does raise an interesting question because I, I do think, you know, that that the affinity that existed for the queen that maybe does not exist to the same extent for her son. Uh, and, and maybe that prompts a conversation about whether this all still makes sense for Canada, whether this is what we still want. And and I, I know you're maybe more more neutral and tend to be neutral on that question, but the, the, it has come up before. Would it be easy? And I think you alluded to maybe the easy route to that would be for the United Kingdom to make the decision on our behalf, because otherwise, this is so entwined in our system of government, our constitution, that would be a tall order, to put it mildly, wouldn't it? It certainly wouldn't, Canada. So when we patriated our constitution in 1982, uh, we managed to, to put the monarchy in the most difficult constitutional amending formula. So it is the unanimous agreement of all the provincial legislatures and the federal parliament. And we can only imagine as well that indigenous peoples who have a direct relationship with the crown would also demand to have their say reflected in any choice that we make. So you can only imagine the enormity of, of trying to make that happen. And even if we want to become a republic, as we saw in Australia in the 1990s when they held the referendum, we also have to agree on the alternative. And that's no right. sense either. So uh, if you really are a diehard Republican in Canada and you really want to get rid of the monarchy, the best thing you should do is move to the United Kingdom and start a Republican campaign there. Because if they did it, it would force us to come to grips with our own monarchy. And I suspect that's really the, the only way for it to happen. It has been a difficult week in this country, in particular in northern Saskatchewan and the James Cree First Nation. Tomorrow marks one week. Since that stabbing rampage that left 10 members of the community dead, this whole awful situation added one more victim, uh, Damien Sanderson, apparently, it seems, murdered by his brother, Miles Sanderson. Uh, that was followed by a four-day-long manhunt. 
for Miles Sanderson, again, believed to be responsible for this stabbing rampage, culminated in his arrest and then his death, which was shocking in and of itself. We saw the images of Miles Sanderson standing aside the police vehicle being arrested, only to learn shortly thereafter that he had died while in police custody. We did learn uh, late yesterday that the RCMP have found the vehicle they believe was used by Miles Sanderson during the time of those stabbing attacks that occurred uh, last Sunday, September 4th. But many questions, obviously, and and I suppose some of the answers uh, did die with the Sanderson brothers. The questions about how this could possibly happen in the first place. Questions about the justice system, the parole system. Questions about the police, the police investigation, the police response. And obviously now some of the silence from police, at least for now, about the circumstances uh, under which Miles Sanderson died. Joining us uh, for some thoughts on uh, these and and many other questions. Very pleased to welcome to the program this afternoon, Michael Kemper. He's an associate professor of criminology at the University of Ottawa. Professor Kemper, uh, Kemper, good to have you with us here. Let me ask you, first of all, though, you know, with everything going on, all of these questions, how important is transparency right now? Transparency was the big lesson of what went wrong in the Portapique massacres in Nova Scotia, as we've been learning through the Mass Casualty Commission. It does seem that the RCMP has been very sensitized by this ongoing commission. They've done their best to apply the lesson of reaching out to the public with emergency alerts as quickly as possible and cooperating with other police agencies to effectively have that network across the entire province as quickly as possible. They told the public what they needed to know for their safety quickly, but now they are going to hold back certain information until they're sure that whatever they release will not compromise the outcome of the very important investigation that will be designed to uncover the things we need to learn to improve the system, to make sure that this doesn't happen again. Right. So in the immediate aftermath of all of this, now that one phase of this is complete, what what are the immediate steps here? Well, the immediate step is to really figure out how Miles Sanderson and his brother went off the rails in terms of their uh, conditions of parole, issues to do with substance abuse, issues to do with staying away from certain people and not misleading uh, parole officers about following conditions or not. One thing we have to understand, people are are rightly very concerned about the parole process right now. And there's people looking to blame maybe one or two people that made a mistake. It is not going to come down to one or two actors that made a mistake. There are systemic issues in parole that have to be addressed. It's not going to be as simple as people expect, but they are problems that we can fix. You mentioned the the inquiry into the uh, the, the massacre in Nova Scotia. Is is this a situation you think that it, that is going to require something similar? Are we likely to see? Do we need to see uh, an inquiry on this whole situation? If there were to be an inquiry, I would say see an inquiry is very large, and it has to do with summoning testimony under oath and so forth. I would say maybe in this case a review might be more appropriate. It would be smaller and it would be directed not only at what the RCMP did in the early hours and so forth and how they conduct their investigation and how, what are the precise circumstances that Miles Sanderson passed away in medical distress. It would also include what went wrong in the systemic failures that led to Miles Sanderson being at large and not picked up. We're going to find things like parole officers have too large of a caseload 
since 2014, we've cut funding in that area. We're going to find that there is not adequate coordination between the parole board and community policing uh, branches of the RCMP and independent municipal police services. So when people are, as we say, twisting in the wind, they're gone, on the, they've absconded on their parole conditions. We're better at mobilizing that network to find them. We're going to find step-by-step step things we can do for where the system somehow allowed Miles Sanderson and his brother to be back out at large and you know, committing this terrible atrocity in the public. Right. I mean, it feels like every step of the way the system failed. I mean, we can even go back to, to uh, you know, Miles Sanderson's uh, childhood and, and, you know, what we've learned about just how, how awful his upbringing was. It, where was the system there? Uh, constant encounters with the justice system, uh, you know, constantly in and out of prison. The rehabilitation side seems to have failed. The the parole, the release, uh, being unlawfully at large, just every step of the way, things seem to go sideways. Well, that is absolutely true. We, we often are very focused on police error and police bias and police racism and so forth. Mm -hmm. We can't forget, though, that it has been documented that there are similar biases and problems in other of the social services institutions. So child services has at different points in time exhibited a high degree of, of discrimination against racialized families and especially indigenous families where problems have not been properly dealt with or they've been dealt with in more of a um, repressive way rather than a resolving type way as they are with other types of families. All through the process, we can't just limit our look at the public police. They are very important, the police, but they are part of a network of community safety and crime control. These agencies have to work together. And in fact, they do very well in northern Saskatchewan this is the area of the country that pioneered the so-called hub model of community policing that links all of these agencies together to try to address people who are at risk, such as Miles Sanderson. So we have to think, if in northern Saskatchewan, we know this to be an area in the country where this type of hub model has been working perhaps better than elsewhere, and still it failed. It would suggest we're in a lot of trouble elsewhere in the country. Yeah, a big question about whether or how this could have been prevented. But in terms of the response to the massacre, and you alluded to it, and it feels like there were some lessons learned from Nova Scotia in terms of uh, getting alerts out in a timely fashion, uh, providing those those constant updates, uh, the cooperation between various agencies, uh, and and you know maybe there's still some some flaws in that response, but definitely seems a, a world of difference from from what happened in Nova Scotia. Is that your sense? It is a world of difference, and it would seem that the RCMP has finally received the message. Nova Scotia was not the first tragedy where the RCMP was overly economical with releasing information and not cooperating with other police organizations. There was the instance of um, the teenaged uh, killing spree that resulted in three deaths in, ben in, in British Columbia in 2019, for example. Very similar story. Each time the RCMP has been reminded, you've got to get out in front of these things, leave behind the sort of mentality that you are a paramilitary gendarmerie type organization, and you are in fact an ordinary community policing local service delivery institution in much of the country by contract. And that message has permeated not only people's minds, I think people have been thinking that way in the RCMP for a long time, but their structures, their protocols are being adjusted to reflect that. Belatedly, 
because we did hear the commissioner, Brenda Lucky, say only last week at the commission in Nova Scotia that as far as she knew, no institutional changes had been made since the Porta Peak massacres in the RCMP. I think that on the ground, officers have adjusted their practices. Well, and it comes at an interesting moment. I mean, obviously, in Alberta and other provinces, there's that conversation around policing. Does the contract policing model still work? Do we need to rethink the RCMP's overall mandate, move to provincial police forces in provinces like Alberta or Saskatchewan? What does this whole situation tell us about whether that's the the path to go down or what the implications could be? There's no question that the mandate of the RCMP has to be reconsidered. I don't think it's a binary. So some people say, well, either get the RCMP completely out of municipal contracted policing and provincially contracted policing and establish wholly independent municipal services and provincial services across the country, or leave it as it is with the RCMP picking up all of this via contract. Now, you can't just throw a switch and move to that completely independent model overnight. Where would the money come from? Where would all of the police officers come from for these remote areas and so forth? Rather, what I'm saying is you're going to scan the country and say, where is it working well for the RCMP on contract? And where would it make sense to move in the direction of independent policing services? For me, Very often, it doesn't matter what police organization you put in place. What matters is, is that police organization properly accountable to the community? Is there a strong local body Mm -hmm. that sets the priorities for the police, representative of the community, and that also is capable of linking the police to that community so that there's cooperation? Too often in the case of the RCMP, that is missing because ultimately the RCMP answers to Ottawa. But in some cases, the RCMP has modified their approach and they've set up these local councils, even though the legislation's not there yet. So I think we can be smart and we can find where it's working well and support it for the RCMP. And where it's not working well, just say it's not a matter of an insult or saying that the organization is a failure, simply that perhaps that model has outgrown its usefulness in the context of a society that is very different. And if some municipalities and provinces want to go in the other direction. Um, That's not a black mark on the RCMP or a dark mark on the RCMP. It's just moving on. The Conservative Party of Canada announcing its new leader, the fourth in seven years. Uh, But uh, a lot of uh, expectation regarding whoever comes out of this leadership race, uh, that the uh, three election losing streak will come to an end under that leader. So the pressure is high, but it's an interesting moment for the Conservative Party. It has been a very lengthy, a seven-month leadership race. Uh, and there's certainly been, I, I think, a lot of tension within the party. Uh, certainly a lot of tension between the two perceived front runners, Pierre Polyev and Jean Charest. But amid all of that, membership numbers have swelled considerably. And so maybe there is a new opportunity here for the Conservative Party. But some big decisions to be made by whoever emerges from this race, certainly based on what we've been seeing through this race. It feels like uh, this is uh, going to be a slam dunk for Pierre Polyev. But joining us to talk about what the numbers are telling us about uh, all of these big questions. Very pleased to be joined here this afternoon by Daryl Bricker, CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. Daryl, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on, Rob. You know, first of all, I mean, you know, felt like the stakes were high going into this race. Uh, you know, people talked about the idea of a, a battle for the soul of the party. But uh, how has it unfolded in your view? 
Well, it really doesn't seem to be a, a battle for the, the soul of the party anymore. Um, when we uh, polled uh, people who say that they're conservative partisans, people who would vote, partis- uh, vote for the conservative party in an election campaign last week, it was pretty clear um, that uh, uh, they, they supported uh, Pierre Polyev. And in fact, the, the, the percentage of people who are conservative partisans uh, supporting Polyev has been going up steadily through the course of the campaign. Uh, so we would certainly expect him to prevail tonight. Uh, we've seen that manifested. You know, he's drawn some big crowds right across the country. As mentioned, that the membership numbers all all backs up what you're talking about. But are we able to put our finger on why? What's driving this? What are the concerns of conservative voters? What has Pierre tapped into? Well, there seems to be a, a lot of uh, dissatisfaction at the moment uh, with the, the direction of the country, and <laughs> pardon me, and the. Performance of the current liberal government, who, by the way, you know, during the course of their government, have found ways of kind of isolating conservatives and making them feel like they're not part of the country's progress uh, for the space mm-hmm. of the last several years. And, and guess what? It's paid off. And what it's done is it's produced a leader who really taps into that—that that sense that the country's on the wrong track and they're they're really being left out of the national conversation. So if conservatives are enthusiastic about Pierre Polyev, what about those who are are not necessarily conservatives, could be persuaded to become conservatives? What's the perception of of this race, of Pierre, of the frontrunners, from those that are kind of outside the party? Well, the average Canadian voter... If they had a chance to vote in this uh, in this leadership, would probably vote for Jean Charest, although his numbers have been coming down a little bit over the space of uh, the, the last few weeks. Uh, but uh, they take a look at Pierre Polyev, and to them, he's a cipher. They really don't know. In fact, 42% of the people that we interviewed in the poll that we released with Global uh, said that they didn't know enough about uh, Pierre Polyev to be able to form an opinion. And what's really interesting when you take a look at the data is all of the movement has been in con- among conservative partisans who've been coming on side with, uh, with Polyev. But the general population's barely budged. And that really uh, it reflects the fact that they're not plugged into what's going on. They're not excited by, by what's going on. And this is going to present a really big challenge for Mr. Polyev coming out of, of the leadership campaign because that has to change. It seems like there's an opportunity in all of that. If if there are not hard and, and fast opinions that have been formed of Pierre Polyev, if he's still got the opportunity to kind of introduce himself to Canadians on, on his own terms, that there is still you know the, the potential for him to, to win some of those people over, it seems. Uh, absolutely. There's a, there's lots of opportunity there. But when a candidate is undefined, it also opens up the opportunity for the opposition to define that candidate. So I expect just as much as uh, Pierre Polyev is going to come out of this race uh, working to define himself with a broader Canadian electorate, the Liberals are going to be very actively doing their very best to define him before he's able to do it himself. Well, it's funny because it, it, a lot of it reminds me of, uh, you know, going back now more than seven years when Justin Trudeau became the Liberal leader and the Conservatives weren't sure whether they should worry about this guy, weren't sure what to make of him, but didn't want to take any chances. I remember the ads that, that ran, you know, he's got great hair, he's just not ready. Uh, they went pretty hard. I mean, in the end, obviously, Justin Trudeau still became prime minister, but there there do seem to be some parallels. Yeah, I would say um, the parallels that really stand out for me, you're absolutely right pointing out what the conservatives try to do with, with Trudeau, although Trudeau was such a well-known brand prior yeah. to uh, him even running for office. It looks more to me like what the liberals were trying to do with Stephen Harper back in 2003, if we can let our memories right. go back that far, prior to the 2004 uh, national election. Uh, 
Polyev reminds me of being very much in the same position as uh, as Harper. And if we remember, Harper lost that election in 2004. Mm-hmm. He, he kept the liberals to a minority. But the, the liberal campaign that they ran against Stephen Harper, both then and in 2006, when Harper eventually won, were savage. And I expect we're going to see something very similar for the liberals. And the reason for that, Rob, is this is the kind of campaign they want to run. They want to run a campaign based on values, whether or not somebody's aligned with being, you know, uh, a real Canadian, whether or not he's, a, you know, like a Donald Trump light. This is a, the type of campaign that they absolutely relish trying to run. It's better than talking about whether inflation is hurting your uh, your particular economic circumstances, because that doesn't uh, uh, bode particularly well for the government, any government in this country right now. Uh, but a, a campaign that's really focused on defining Pierre Polyev and defining them in very negative terms is something that I, I very much expect that the Liberals will do. Well, like, for example, linking him to the convoy protests, is, is that still a, a vulnerability? Well, it's interesting on the convoy. Um, the, you know, if, if you go to Ottawa and you talk to the Laurentian elite media, and you know, people, they, they, they're of a mind of how Canadians reacted to the convoy. But the truth right. was that that sentiment, that real sense of anger that the convoy put forward, even if people didn't agree with their tactics, we ask Canadians, you know, whether or not you sympathize with some of the things that are behind the uh, behind the protest, and 42% of Canadians said that they did. Now, if anybody got 42% of the vote in the next election campaign, they'd form a majority. You mentioned the Trudeau brand, which was uh, certainly riding high in 2015, not so much in 2022. So, uh, as the Liberals prepare to take on a new Conservative leader, where are they at in terms of public support and public perception? Well, I think, you know, uh, the Prime Minister announced last week that he's going to be running again in the next campaign. And if we take him at face value, I think the idea of facing off against a pure Polyev is probably something that's quite appealing to him. I don't think that there would be any sense that he would be afraid to take on Pierre Polyev an election campaign. As I said, that value uh, values-based campaign, you know, what's right and wrong, what's real Canadian, what isn't real Canadian, is a kind of campaign that really appeals to Justin Trudeau. And by the way, a campaign that he could run quite effectively. So I don't think he's backing away from uh, from uh, uh, Pierre Polyev. But the other thing that I know, being having been around this game for a long time, they'll be taking a look at the numbers as they go into the spring of this year, of, of, of 2023. And if the numbers aren't uh, moving in the liberal direction, uh, you might start seeing uh, Justin Trudeau thinking about his future. Uh, because I don't think he'd want to go into a campaign with the potential of losing. It's been a long leadership race. I think everyone would agree. But ultimately, I think this has been good for the Conservative Party. More than twice as many members are voting in this contest than voted in the last race in 2020. So Conservative Party membership has has swelled to unprecedented levels that suggest not just engagement in the leadership race, but some enthusiasm uh, about the party going forward, some enthusiasm maybe for conservatism. So there's an opportunity here for conservatives that maybe hasn't been there in a while. And maybe partly that's because of Pierre Polyev's uh, ascension. And we certainly expect that he is indeed going to prevail. So joining us to talk about what this moment is, how the conservatives can seize it, and what this all means, not just for the party, but for the conservative movement in this country. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Jamil Giovanni, president of the Canada Strong and Free Network. Obviously been watching all of this very closely. Jamil, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. 
Thanks, Rob. Yeah, great to be with you. I guess, you know, we'll just start with the, kind of the, the uh, obvious, maybe the crystal ball casing. I mean, we, we expect Pierre Polyev is, is likely to win handily this evening. Is that kind of what you're expecting? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, Pierre Polyev has been, you know, the perceived front runner from day one. And I think in large mm-hmm. part because he really did pivot very quickly from Aaron O'Toole sort of failing to keep everyone together in the conservative coalition to presenting himself as the guy who can keep this coalition together. And I think Pierre Polyev has done a good job of asserting himself in that role. We'll see, of course, he's got you know some time to see whether he can put a winning coalition together that can actually win an election to govern the country. But in terms of bringing conservatives together, you're absolutely right. I mean, he's grown the membership base. He's attracted a lot of young people, millennials and Gen Zers. And most importantly, he's provided a voice to people who are unhappy with the status quo and looking for some challenge to people in power. You know, maybe to some extent, you know, Jean Charest kind of represented that status quo or maybe represented, you know, yesterday's politics. But look, the fact that he was in this race garnered some support. I mean, you know, he's a factor. Pierre Polyev certainly, you know, ran hard against Jean Charest, suggesting he was uh, more of a liberal than a conservative. Do you think that can be reconciled? Do you think there's there's a place still in the party for, for Jean Charest and his supporters? For some of them, yes. I mean, I think there will be people, and there have been some John Charest supporters who've come out and said they're going to leave the party if Pierre Polyev wins. And some of them may be telling the truth, because the reality is a lot of John Charest's support came from people who are really trying to defend the status quo in this country, particularly the economic status quo. And for those folks, maybe they're not going to like the direction of the Conservative Party moving forward, which is trying to be more responsive to the middle class, to the working class, hardworking men and women. That's a shift. And some people might not like that shift. But I think the majority of people who support Jean Charest will uh, get behind Pierre Polyev, maybe not right away, but eventually, because at the end of the day, he's also the alternative to Justin Trudeau. And I don't think a lot of those people are happy with Trudeau in power. So, you know, as long as Polyev can present himself as an alternative who will be more responsive to people's concerns than Trudeau has been, I think he'll be able to build a big enough tent to actually grow the movement moving forward. You know, it's interesting because, you know, I think the liberals talk a good game, you know, that they're, they're not afraid of Pierre Polyev, but I, I, I think they they should be, or at least they should be afraid of what's happening right now. Maybe they speak from experience. Look, I mean, you know, they, they came in in 2015 with a strong message of change that really resonated clearly with Canadians. Right now, Canadians want change, and the Liberals don't represent that. So how worried should the Liberals be? What, what's driving this, uh, you know, desire for change or this uh, unrest with the status quo right now? Yeah, it's a a really important question, Rob. I think some of what's driving the change is the economy, inflation, housing prices, gas prices. A lot of people feeling like their their dollar is not going as far today as it went 10 years ago. Um, I think that's driving a lot of frustration with the Trudeau government. Obviously, the the handling of the pandemic. I don't want to pretend that there was an easy alternative. I mean, this is a complicated problem to address from every level of government over the last three years. But there are a lot of people who are very frustrated with Trudeau's particularly divisive approach where he's openly you know, spoken about unvaccinated people or even people who are just who are vaccinated but don't like a lot of the mandates or these sorts of policies. He's spoken about them in a very disdainful way, which I think is naturally going to breed contempt toward his government. And then I think the third major factor is on a cultural level. I mean, 
if people look back at the kinds of things Justin Trudeau was saying when he first was running for prime minister, he used to come out and say to people, you know, one way we can solve our social problems is encouraging more fathers in the home, more families to stay intact. These days, if he spoke that way, he'd be called a social conservative. And I think the the degree to which the liberals have changed on cultural issues over the last 10 years has left a lot of Canadians sort of standing here being like, whoa, whoa. I mean, now it's like it's moving at such a fast pace that people don't feel like they even know where our culture is anymore. So I think all of these different things, economics, the pandemic stuff, the cultural stuff is all aggregating into some you know big ball of frustration toward the Trudeau government. And Pierre Polyev is such a strong communicator that I think he's providing a voice to those frustrations and it's resonating with a lot of people. There's two interesting things here to me that, that stand out. And one of it involves Pierre Polyev, and it seems like he's he's drawing in people that maybe have, have been on the, the sidelines when it comes to politics, haven't been involved in parties, maybe haven't even voted. Uh, we also had in Ontario recently the re-election of Doug Ford. And, you know, the, the factors there, the the blue-collar workers, the, the were part of that winning coalition, people that maybe in the past, you know, the working class voters who maybe had voted NDP in the past, you know, finding themselves in that conservative camp. I think, you know, those two forces uh, could be really powerful for conservatives. Absolutely. So you know, in Ontario, we've seen Ontario's uh, labor minister, Monty McNaughton, as well as Premier Doug Ford, go to great lengths to build relationships with unions. And they were endorsed by a number of uh, unions, especially in the construction industry, in the lead up to June's uh, re-election, where they won a majority of seats in Ontario's parliament. So there does seem to be momentum in connecting with union members, connecting with working class and middle class voters. I think it's an opportunity that, that the Conservatives across Canada need to take very seriously because the NDP is slipping right now. I really feel like Jagmeet Singh is on the ropes. The party that has historically represented hardworking union members now has sort of made a deal with the Trudeau government. They're kind of owning and supporting a lot of the policies that union members don't like when it comes to things like inflation and driving up the cost of living. So the Conservatives have a real opportunity. And, you know, one of the things I wrote in the National Post this week, just to kind of encourage Conservatives to be mindful of some of the changes they need to make, too, because what I'm worried about is a lot of this momentum as a conservative. I'm worried that a lot of this momentum could be dissipated if these guys continue to go back to the old playbook of fighting with teachers unions and nursing unions. And, you know, I think they need to realize there's an opportunity to change how conservatives do politics as well and not just ride this wave of anti-liberal and anti-NDP sentiment. We're fighting with each other. I mean, obviously, you know, we, we saw that uh, with, uh, you know, what happened under Aaron O'Toole, you know, where I am here in Alberta, you're certainly seeing a lot of conservative infighting here. I mean, it's not good for, for the party. It's not good for the movement, is it? Well, it depends on what people are fighting over. Like, I think, you know, the average Canadian, if they see people having a genuine debate about ideas and policies and really a contest over what's best for the country. I don't think the average voter, conservative, liberal, NDP, whatever, sees it as a bad thing. It's when it gets like personal and myopic and small minded. That's where the fighting, I think, starts to feel like, is it really about Canada at this point or is it about people's personal egos? So my hope is that moving forward, whenever the next election might be, that Pierre Polyev and his team really uh, you know, take that to heart and focus on the issues and not get caught up into you know, small, personal grievances. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, 
Subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 